Welcome to Bookend, a virtual book club brought to you by the Team Approach. Our theme this year on Bookends is leadership, and today we will visit with Steve Arneson, who has written Bootstrap Leadership, 50 Ways to Break Out, Take Charge, and Move Up. To obtain a copy of today's featured book, please visit www.bootstrapleadership.net. You can access today's podcast and all of our Bookends programs on iTunes, or you can visit bookendsbookclub.net, where you can listen to this interview and check out our resource blog for free chapters and other resources provided by authors featured on this program. After reading Steve's book, you might want to discuss it, and we have created a place for you to do this. Simply sign into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. In this LinkedIn group, you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are members of the group. Please be sure to invite your friends to join the group to listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stam, and I'd like to introduce Steve Arneson, who founded Arneson Leadership Consulting in 2007 to provide executive talent management, coaching, and leadership development solutions to corporations and nonprofit organizations. Dr. Arneson has been named one of America's top 100 thought leaders on leadership in 2008, 2009, and 2010, and one of the country's top 25 leadership coaches for 2008, 2009, and 2010 by Leadership Excellence Magazine. Steve speaks regularly on the topics of leadership to corporate groups and conference audiences and writes a national weekly leadership column at leadershipexaminer.com. In his career, Steve has served as a regional vice president for Aon Consulting Worldwide and as the head of learning, leadership development, and executive talent management at Capital One, America Online, Time Warner Cable, and divisions of Yum Brands and PepsiCo. Steve has been a leadership coach for 20 years and is a graduate of Georgetown Leadership Coaching Program. Steve received his Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Montana State University and his MA in organizational psychology from the University of Kansas before completing his PhD in organizational psychology from the University of Tulsa. Steve Arneson, welcome to Bookends. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. I've been looking forward to it. Steve, near the end of your book, you talk about the work of Noel Tishy and his leadership points of view. And these points of view are often formulated from the personal journey that's actually discussed in the first, the first chapter of your book. How can others benefit from sharing their personal leadership journeys, and what kind of benefit might come from this kind of self-reflection? Yeah, this is a great exercise, I believe, that any leader should, uh, should, should go through. They should capture kind of where they've been in their leadership life since they've had their first supervisory position. Uh, where was it? What were the dates? And what did they learn? You know, what were the critical incidents, incidents that came their way? And what did they take away and file away and, and still have today as lessons that they live by? If you put it all on one slide or maybe two slides, it, it makes for a wonderful story to take your team through um, so that they can understand a little bit more about you and you know, where you've been and what you've learned and what some of your values are, frankly. It's not only a wonderful communications device, but it is a terrific self-reflection opportunity as you think back about you know, all the stops you made 
the different companies, the different roles, and what you learned along the way. So I, I really encourage all leaders to fill out this leadership journey type of exercise and share it with their teams. Would you um, have an example, uh, you know, for example, from your, your own life, some really significant um, uh, lesson that, that you could point to? Um, you know, you've served in these various organizations. Um, something that, that kind of stands out to you that if you were working with a, a lower-level leader that you might point to a significant lesson and say, this was a really, a, you know, a big moment in my, my leadership development. I absolutely have one. My, my very first supervisory job, um, it's, I'll make this a short story, but we were living in Houston, and some of the people that worked for me had a very long commute. And I was a stickler for everyone getting there by 8 a.m., that we must start our day by 8 a.m., and all of us must be here. And uh, I made it – I'm not very proud of this and don't look back on this fondly, but I made everybody, you know, be there by 8 o'clock. And for some people, that meant a pretty difficult – uh, challenge to navigate traffic to make sure that that happened. And I think what I learned from that is trust your people. You know, if they're putting in the hours, they're going to get the work done. It doesn't matter if they're there at 8.15 or 8.20 uh, in this case. So I learned a pretty valuable lesson because I think it cost me on the productivity side and on the um, engagement side by being so uh, strict Mm -hmm. and holding such a hard-held position. That's a great story. In, in Chapter 4, which is called Your Own Private Detective, mm -hmm. you introduce the idea of peer mentors, and you share a personal example of a time that you worked with such a mentor, and, and this person really uh, helped you out a lot. Would you tell us a little bit about uh, this particular situation and share your advice for setting up a peer mentor relationship? Yeah, I, I'm big on this notion of declaring your intentions as a leader. I, I coach a lot of senior leaders and I, I encourage them to be more declarative about their intentions and that includes what you're working on to develop yourself. You know, all of us need to work on our game and you may be working on two or three things at any one time. It's, it's kind of silly to keep that a secret. So if you tell a peer, someone that you spend a lot of time with, uh, somebody on the same staff or, or team as you are, about what you're working on and then ask them or enlist them to help you and in fact give them a pretty special role. Uh, in my case I had a tendency to uh, debate a bit too much in staff meetings and I could disrupt the flow of the meeting or I could take it you know, off the rails in a different direction. So I identified that as something I wanted to change. I asked Doug, my close friend who was on the team with me, if he would sit next to me in meetings and kick me under the table when he saw that I was doing that. <laughs> and literally it helped. I mean, I, I really started to make those, uh, those diatribes a lot shorter. Once I felt that kick, I kind of started to wrap it up. And we made significant progress together on my development need, but I would have only done that uh, with his help if I had talked to him about it and asked him to, to you know, to be a, a mentor to me. That's a great story, and I, what I really like about this particular idea in the book is that when you invite that person who's your peer into this kind of relationship and give them permission to, you know, kick you under the table or whatever it might be, um, it's not the same as, as um, sort of being prodded by your boss. It, it, right. it seems to take on a, a different dynamic, um, a little bit more even playing field, and um, it's safer. So I really yeah. liked it. It's a great idea. 
In Chapter 7, you share a great process for leveraging your strengths. Would you talk to us a little bit about this and share your thoughts on whether or, or not you feel it's more important for us to really work at maximizing our strengths? You hear so much about this in, in you know, um, popular books today. Uh, is it more important for us to focus on our strengths, or should we be really working at fixing our sort of gaps? Yeah, this is a very popular um line of thinking these days to just just leverage your strengths and don't even bother about your so-called weaknesses, which I call development opportunities. I don't subscribe fully to that line of thinking. Uh, it's hard for me to be an executive coach, and I'd be out of business, I think, if I felt like you, you didn't have some opportunity to, to move the needle on your development opportunities. I think my philosophy is you don't have to necessarily just work from your strengths, I certainly think you should leverage them. There's no question that you should answer the questions in Chapter 7, such as, where am I most comfortable? You know, where do I have the, um, what am I most proud of? What situations uh, can I really leverage and, and teach others? But I don't think that we're going to approach well-roundedness as leaders if we don't also try to work on some of our development opportunities. So I say, Leverage your strengths, put them out front, but try to at least neutralize. You don't have to turn a weakness into a towering strength. That, that's mm -hmm. hard to do anyway. But you should be conscious of where they may be potential derailers and where you need to at least neutralize them so that they are not holding you back. So most of the clients I end up working with uh, as a coach have significant gaps that if they don't close those gaps or at least neutralize them, they will start to cap out or, to, or you know, top out as a leader in their organization. So they have many strengths, but they have a couple of glaring opportunities that others have identified as something problematic. So I don't think I can, with a straight face, give advice of don't worry about your weaknesses, just play to your strengths, because mm -hmm. I think that's a little short-sighted. Yeah, I would agree, and I think that's great advice. I really uh, also like the exercise that you offered in Chapter 9, which confronts us to examine our hard-held positions. Um, I think this is really great advice for those of us in leadership roles. Would you describe the process and why this could be so important to us? Well, leaders that have that achieve you know, the, the highest level of maturity and professionalism are open-minded, mm -hmm. and they are not closed off to new ways of thinking. They don't have to have all the answers themselves. They don't always have to be right. And so what I ask people to do in the book is to, to be honest with yourself, be really candid, and, and look at your beliefs, look at your opinions and your positions, and identify any, uh, if you have any, identify those that are what I would call hard-held positions, where you don't really have any flexibility. Uh, you have to be right on this, and you will argue all the way to the end on it, because that's not the kind of, uh, of leader that organizations are really looking for. Uh, we're trying to find people who will be flexible, will be adaptable, will be open-minded. So I just simply ask people to get a piece of paper and a pen out and write down, if they can think of any, incredibly stubborn positions that they have that they pretty much will not <laughs> compromise on and, and see the light on any other uh, alternatives, and then list some possible alternatives. So, you know, this, I, I guess, if I had to say, this could be an alternative. So that has a way of unlocking for people 
uh, some insight about themselves that, that others may be pretty annoyed by, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't want people to back themselves into a corner. I want them to be really aware of where they are being most stubborn, if in fact that's a, a trait that they have. Such a great uh, exercise and uh, opening up new possibilities for us. I just loved it. I thought it was wonderfully creative um, and useful. You you recommend that we only tackle one skill or behavior per year in Chapter 13 of your book. And um, I th- this was you know I thought really good advice. I'd lo- I'd like if you could talk to us a little bit about this and tell us why you feel one per year is the right way to go. And if you could, share the process that you offer in this chapter for creating change. Right. It doesn't have to be one per year, but my, my suggestion and my premise is that if you have a 30-year career, let's say, as a manager, what could you achieve if you really did go deep on one skill every 12 months? I mean, gosh, by the time 20 years went by, you'd be incredibly knowledgeable and, and expert at, at quite a few different uh, leadership traits or characteristics. So it's, it's just a suggestion that I want people, I want, I want it to be a provocative suggestion that makes people think. And the idea behind it would be that you would spend the first quarter really going to school on this. So let's say listening more effectively is a skill that you wanted to really perfect and, and cement in your toolkit. You might spend the first quarter doing as much research about listening effectively as you possibly could. Maybe you'd study some role models. You'd certainly read about it. Uh, but you would collect the data and get your plan of action in place in the first quarter. In the second and third quarters of the year, you would practice. You would put into application what you've learned. Maybe it's leading change, like you mentioned. Maybe it's being more strategic. Maybe it's listening effectively, whatever it may be. Let's say it's change. So if you've learned about how to lead change, maybe you used Bridges' model or Cotter's model, now in the second and third quarters, I'd like to see you practice that. So lead a change project, right? Take an organization or a department through a significant change and apply what you've learned. And then if you really want to top it all off, as we all know, to to teach is to learn. So I, I recommend taking the fourth quarter and figuring out a way to teach this skill. So maybe now you go around the company doing a one-hour or 90-minute workshop on leading change, talk about your experiences of diving deep into the topic, practicing and applying it for a couple of quarters, and now you're out spreading the gospel of, of change leadership. So I think if you did that, that kind of really focused approach, uh, just think 12 months goes by pretty fast. If you, oh, yeah. If you tried something that deep and that focused, and then the next year you're doing another one, you probably become pretty significantly well-rounded in, in no time. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting. I'd never you know, seen it positioned quite that way, and I really liked it. And I especially liked it because um, it seemed to be in line with a lot of the current brain research, you know, talking about learning be, being really a physiological change that really takes time. And by really giving yourself, you know, the the real amount of time that might be needed to actually rewire the brain and do things new ways, uh, I thought it was, you know, working 
pretty synonymously with, um, you know, what's coming out about how the brain works. So it was really great, and um, thank you for that. You know, I've always believed that delegating is probably one of the most underutilized opportunities that leaders uh, have available. Um, you know, they just don't seem to delegate as much as they could. And I was really interested in, um, you talk about delegation in your book, and you describe it as being the secret to being effective at the next level of leadership. Why do you say this uh, is? And, um, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you think leaders are, you know, really getting out there and utilizing delegating? And what can they do to become, you know, more masterful at, at doing this, at doing what you call the what, not the how? Most of the leaders that I coach are very senior executives, and I would say about every third leader has as part of their development plan to stop being a micromanager. <laughs> they just uh, Delegation is not something that is only for first-level supervisors or the next level. It seems to go all the way to the top of our organizations. Uh, you know, there's three reasons why people don't delegate more effectively, and, and I'm going to talk about those briefly and then, and then talk about what you can do about it. The first is that they don't have a strong enough team. They literally just they have to pitch in because the team's not strong enough. Now, that's a whole other set of issues that the leader needs to face and take on upgrading the team. But generally, sometimes I see people being reluctant to delegate or not delegating very effectively because they just don't have any – they don't have good enough talent to give it to. Mm -hmm. The second reason is they just love their craft. They love the – the marketing, sales, ops, finance, HR, IT, whatever they're in, they love it so much, they, they want to do it. I've got a senior leader I'm coaching who still writes code. He's a technologist because he loves writing code. <laughs> so he, you know, he stays up all night on the weekends pitching in to help his team when he really should not be doing that. Mm. Uh, and the third reason is fear. Mm. I, I run into a fair amount of leaders who literally do not know what they would do all day if they weren't helping their teams do their jobs, right, if they weren't down in the weeds uh, with their sleeves rolled up. They don't know how to lead and make leading their full-time job. Interesting. Okay, they just, they're kind of afraid of that role and don't really want to, 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 to you know, to major in leadership. Um, they like this other thing that they're involved in. So I think the secret to, to delegation is knowing that which only you can do knowing that which only you can do, and then doing those things. Everything else you should give away. Everything else you should delegate. So if there are a few things, like coaching the team and, and doing performance appraisals, and, and maybe you have to be the one that goes to the boss's meeting, maybe you have to meet that key customer, you should create this list, of, and it probably be fairly small, of the things that only you can do, that you have to do. The rest is a learning opportunity. It's an experience that you should be giving to your direct reports or maybe skip-level employees to help them grow and develop. And you can be coaching and mentoring and providing feedback along the way. That then becomes your job, right? Uh, or gaining resources for the team or breaking down barriers for the team. There's a lot involved in leading that doesn't look anything like what the people below you are doing. So the, the, the temptation you have to resist is doing that work instead of the leadership work. Here's the last thing I'll say about this. I'm very passionate about this because this, this is many leaders' issue. Mm -hmm. You have to fall in love with the role of leadership and love it more than your craft. Mm -hmm. so if, you, if you're a marketer or you're an IT guy or you're a finance guy, as you move up the organization, you've got to actually embrace and love 
the profession of leadership more than the finance, the marketing, or the IT. Otherwise, you'll never make the full transition to being a great leader. Great, great, uh, good stuff. And, um, you know, I think too many of us are a little bit too in love with the craft, as you call it, um, and uh, missing the, the larger opportunity. Uh, as you've probably guessed, I am a pretty strong advocate for lifelong learning, uh, and I really appreciated seeing the chapter that you call Hit the Books. Um, I was curious, um, are you aware of any research on what happens to us after we've left that formal education setting? Are we still reading? How much are we reading? And, um, and then perhaps maybe you could share some of your great advice from this chapter. Reading business books is, a, is an art form, really. I mean, if you, if you master the art of skimming, uh, business books do not have to be scary. Uh, most of them are 250, 280 pages. They have a central premise or theme, and then they, they walk through that central premise or theme with either examples, interviews, research, or you know, um, a step-by-step kind of process. You can generally get a sense for what the book's major theme is in the first 20 pages or so. Frankly, and I shouldn't say this since I'm an author of a business book, it, they probably could all be 8 to 12 page papers if we really were honest <laughs> with one another. But there are some rich stories uh, in these books that are, very, are worth, you know, worth the, uh, the effort. I don't know. I think we get fatigued. Uh, God knows there's a lot going on in our lives, and people are busy at work, and it's difficult to find the time to squeeze in and carry around, frankly, on airplanes and trains, etc., you know, a hardback business book. So that's probably why uh, summaries and uh, periodicals are so popular, because they boil it down for us. We get the concept. We can talk at the cocktail parties. Uh, or we can talk at the conference table at work <clears throat> about the concept, but we don't have to maybe invest in the entire book. Mm-hmm. So I understand it's difficult. I mean, I think it's a time constraint issue more than anything else. I think people want the knowledge. Um, it's it's how to get it in the most economical way that is really the issue. So what I recommend people do is to is to make more of a game out of it or make more of a treat out of it. Go down to – I'm a huge book guy, so I – you know, we – we have thousands of books in our house, and I can't read them all fast enough. And so I love Borders, or I love Barnes & Noble, or I like going to a physical bookstore. So I say, on your birthday, go to a bookstore and buy three business books. Just buy the three most popular. I've been hearing people talk about these books that you can find with a goal of reading all three by the, your next birthday. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I run into a lot of people who don't read any business books. So if you read just three a year, you'd be well ahead of the game if you're in that camp. So I think this is kind of a way to treat yourself, um, set a goal, and then kind of you know, track against it. So uh, that's what I advise in the book. I said make, have some fun with this and, and you know, treat yourself on your birthday. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a very attainable, doable goal. And uh, you know, people are making incremental uh, knowledge leaps, and um, and it's a good thing, and it's not hard to do. Good advice. In a chapter that you call the best thinking tool ever invented, you talk about the topic of journaling. And I don't know about you, but when I bring up journaling in front of a group of people, I hear a lot of sighs, <laughs> a lot of groans. And yeah, sighs. groans. Yeah. The others like, oh no. Uh, but um, you, in your book, share I thought 
three really, you know, quite different approaches uh, to journaling to kind of fit sort of different, um, you know, styles of, of people. And they were really great. Uh, could you describe these approaches and um, try to convince some of the skeptics out there that journaling is really a good thing? Yeah, the first is longhand. And, and I don't even do this one, but it's, it's a little bit of a lost art. But having a really great, uh, you know, colorful or kind of, provocative journal, right? You know, something that screams, this is me, or really nice leather bound. So go, go to the store and treat yourself again and, uh, and buy yourself a really cool journal and try it. I, I like to ask clients to try this. Just take a few moments on the weekend, in the evening, maybe at lunch if you've got a moment, and write down what, you know, what, what's happening to you this week. How are you feeling about it? Uh, where do you want to take, you know, the team next week or whatever? And just, just pour your thoughts into a journal, old-fashioned-wise. It's a bit of a lost art, but I think some people still do it and speak. If you find somebody who does do it, they're, they're passionate about it. It really works for them. If that is not your cup of tea, I, I think another option is to do what I call note-taking. And I, I ask people, I still do this today. I, I mean, I spoke yesterday at, a, at a, an event about the book, and I, I said, before we start, I want everybody to take out a piece of paper and put a big cross on it. <laughs> break the piece of paper into four quadrants. And in the upper left, put learnings. In the upper right, put ideas. Lower left, put questions. Lower right, put reflections. And put some bullets under each. Now, what I want you to do all day today is I want you to fill up this page. So if you're in a meeting, you're at a conference, you're at an association meeting, you know, and, and, and you want a quick and easy way to capture lots of different thoughts, try this four-quadrant approach and see if you don't fill up several pages. So what are you learning? What are you taking away that you want to you know, take back to your team? Something new that goes in the upper left. What ideas is this conversation unlocking for you? Write those down on the upper right. What questions is this conversation raising for you? You know, well, hey, i got to go back and ask the team, is that the way we do it, and so on. And finally, what reflections as a leader are you having as you, as you have this experience today? Whether it's When I go to a conference, I find so much value in just getting away from work and having that piece of paper in front of me and a pen and kind of pouring my thoughts and some of my creative innovation stuff onto the page. And it really kind of energizes me to go back and see what I've written when I get home and say, okay, I'll put this, this, and this into practice. Uh, so I, I would encourage you to do that in any meeting you're in all day long. And I, I've, I've found that it fills the time, and you'll come up with something more meaningful and useful than just your normal note-taking. And then finally, uh, the third version is um, I want leaders to really get to know their people. So I encourage them to keep a folder on each employee. And every time you have a one-on-one, -on -one, whatever you do, even if it's a loose piece of paper, put it in that folder. So if you've got Linda at 2011, by the time the year is over, You'll have a record of what Linda worked on, the delegations you gave her, the feedback you gave her, your, her accomplishments, and then you can, it makes it easier to write the performance appraisal, but it also keeps track of your interaction with each direct report in a more productive, kind of meaningful, formal way. So that's just three ways that you can use the two greatest you know, thinking tools ever invented, uh, the pen and paper. Uh, there probably are plenty more, but I, I don't think people write enough these days. Yeah. And I think capturing your thoughts and your ideas and your reflections in some kind of manageable, formal way is a wonderful habit to get into.
I, I agree, and I think we learn from those reflections, and those are certainly great approaches to doing it. Thank you for those. I had to chuckle as I read a comment that you made. Uh, you were talking about employees that work in larger companies in particular, um, and you talked even about leaders, and you said that these these folks often don't have a firm grasp on how their company actually works. And I had just recently had a conversation with an employee and mentioned happened to mention the president's name and realized uh, by the way that she was looking at me that you know she had no idea who the president was <laughs> I had to tell her and so um, I would tend to agree um, people don't often not only know how the company works but maybe even who the important players are in it uh, would you share some of your tips for learning the business and describe how one might go about this in a culture where maybe there's not a lot of autonomy so how would you do this in that kind of a culture as well yeah, there are so many silos in organizations, it's not even funny. Everywhere I go, every client I speak with, every audience I speak to, they get it. They, they, I get the looks back that, that I'm on target here. They know their department or their group pretty well, of course, but they don't really know what's going on in the rest of the company. If you work in yeah. finance, you really don't know what's going on in marketing. And my premise is that it would make you a more well-rounded leader, more well-rounded executive, if you had a broad-based knowledge of the organization. How do we make the product? How do we sell it? How do we price it? How do we talk to customers? How do we innovate? You know, how do we do the things that make us successful? And not just in our department, but elsewhere in the company. So, by the way, particularly on the front lines, because there's a lot of people who work in staff groups who never have to speak, you know, speak to the customer. And that, you know, puts them pretty far removed from why the company exists. So there's lots of ways you can do this. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, when I was at AOL, we realized we really, my team and I, we didn't know that much about how we made the client that went on people's desktops. So we each, we made a vow to one another that we would each learn something new, one thing each, about the company each week. And at our Monday staff meeting, we'd go around the room and we'd say, what did you learn last week about the company? Great. And if we, you know, I had eight direct reports, so there were nine of us or so in the room, and we each did this. We kept our commitments. We learned in one year, just you can do the math, you know, like eight times, nine times uh, 50 is, is 450 new things that we learned together about the company. None of us could have done that on our own. So we turned it into a team-building event. And we went out there with, uh, you know, with our Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass, and we tried to learn about the company. So, uh, you know, you could take a finance guy to lunch, right, and say, tell me about our, what's our main financial statements? Is it the balance sheet, the income statement? Teach me what we look at, how we talk to analysts. You could go to, to breakfast with the marketing, uh, uh, you know, executive and say, what's the campaign uh, strategy, you know, for, for advertising? All you have to do is get curious about the world around you, particularly in your own company. And I think it makes you more valuable, and it makes you stand out. So talk about 50 ways to move up and take charge. If you want to kind of politely step in front of the line for the promotions, this is one of the ways to do it because the senior executives really love the junior leaders who are going out of their way to be well-rounded and very knowledgeable. That's great advice and probably not bad advice for the people at the very top to do the same thing kind of in reverse as well. That's right. 
Yeah. Well, um, innovation is certainly something that we need to keep encouraging in organizations, my goodness, especially today. And you have this great idea that you offer uh, in a chapter that you call Road Trip, uh, which is really a great way to learn and, you know, get out there and be inspired by the very best. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how, how this would work and how we could use this? Yeah, you'd have to have a passion for innovation to do this probably because it's a little bit involved. But the idea is to go to take the team. Maybe you pair up with a, a, a peer, so you double the team size, right? So maybe now you have 40 people, and you say, let's identify five companies in our area, you know, not too far away, maybe 30-minute drive or something like that. And let's have those five companies be, you know, we want to go study innovation. So we want to find out that they're known for doing XYZ really well. Let's go see if we can set up, you know, some meetings and learn about that. We get you know cut the group into groups of eight, throw them in vans, and head out for the day. With a, you know obviously this would all be structured and set up ahead of time with the, with the uh, the visiting company. But maybe you'd tour a plant. Maybe you'd have a, a conference room session with a, a variety of leaders from that company. But task those eight people with learning as much as they can about that company and how they innovate. And by the way, it'd be really great if it was kind of perpendicular to your own company. So if you make widgets go visit a you know symphony orchestra get some get as out of the box as you can on this because that'll help spark the the innovative uh, conversation so this happens all day long on say a tuesday and then wednesday morning you devote and maybe you'll need all of wednesday but you come back together then and you tell each other stories and so you know the the eight that went to see the symphony talk about what they learned and how they do things there and we debrief and we talk about that and then the next group goes and so on it's a great way to combine team building with best practice sharing with unlocking some new thinking and, and, and innovation. So it, it's a little involved. It's going to require a little gas money but it's, uh, and some connections into these companies. But you can a great delegation opportunity, right? You just assign somebody to set this <laughs> up. They can run the project. All you had to do was get it started as the leader. Yeah, I think it's very, very creative. And I don't think innovation is something that we can kind of just produce on the cheap. I think it, it does take an investment and, you know, kind of um, um, uh, we have to get people at a place where they kind of get into that mindset. And I thought you, your road trip idea was was a real way to inspire people. I loved it. In Chapter 30 in your book, you challenge us to learn off the job. And I recently had the opportunity to inter um, to interview Bruce Rosenstein here on Bookends, and you probably know uh, Bruce uh, is, the, is also a BK author. He is the author of, Mo of Living in More Than One World, which is actually a, a book about Peter Drucker's little-known personal development ideals. We think of him as this big management guru, and he turns out to be a personal development junkie. How about that? <laughs> in, in any event, um, he would, Drucker himself, would have fully supported your thinking in this chapter. Uh, could you tell us a little bit, you know, about how, why you feel this is so valuable and, and this idea, uh, why it's so important? The key for me is passion. I mean, we, we, we typically do not spend all of our, you know, uh, all of our uh, discretionary time on something that we don't like or love. And so what is it about something, a hobby or a pursuit of learning on the outside of work that we could learn from? And what's, what, that, what is fascinating to me is that people will pour their heart and souls into their hobbies, into the things that interest them, or maybe it's just gaining new knowledge. Um, and I'd like to see if they could bring that back, that same feeling back to the world of work. So there were three questions that I encourage people to try to, to 
build a bridge from their passion or their hobby to, to the world of work, which is, why am I doing this? You know, if you made a detailed list of, of the reasons you love your hobby, if you wrote all of that down and be, get really descriptive about it, maybe you could do that same thing about your work, you know, or, or the assignment you've been given, whatever. How did I get good at this would be the second question. So examine the pattern of discipline that allowed you to improve. Maybe it's playing the piano or learning to you know, speak a new language. How did you get good at it? And I bet you'll come back to practice. And Gladwell and others with the 10,000 hours of practice kind of notion. And finally, mm-hmm. what am I getting out of this? You know, hobbies give back to us almost as much as we invest in them in, in, in terms of enjoyment and relationships and, and what have you. So capture what you're getting back from this investment and this time, and then ask yourself, you know, what are you getting back from your work or your relationships at work? So it's a bit of a holding the mirror up exercise to kind of shine the spotlight a bit on energizing yourself about your work assignments by comparing it to or contrasting it with the heavy investment and the hard work that you put into your hobbies. That's great. I just love that. Many leaders, you make the point in the book that many of us in leadership roles have hesitated to admit when we have made a mistake. Um, And I certainly admit that that is true for me in my life. I know that there have been times that I have hesitated to admit that I've been wrong. Um, And you talk about, uh, you know, I I know that that's true. You you offer three ways that we can develop more humility. And um, humility is not a topic that we hear a whole lot about these days, but I think it's certainly a very important character that we need to think about and work at developing. Can you um, can you talk about how we can do this? Yeah, one of the things that you you have to develop humility and and demonstrate humility uh, to be a really great leader, I believe. I, nobody wants to work for an arrogant, condescending know-it-all. So, the notion of asking others for feedback on a continual basis, what's your perspective? What's your opinion? That will keep you. Uh, honest relative to forming your own point of view. And so if you have a hard-held position, one of the best ways you can soften that is to make sure you're gathering perspectives and, and opinions on a regular basis. So, you know, ask yourself, do I have all the information I need? Do I have I gathered all the perspectives from the people that, that matter on this decision before making a call? The second thing I think that, you know, that you can do is um, – you know, just simply, you have to admit when you're wrong, if you're wrong, okay? So I've seen leaders who, when they get boxed into a corner and it's apparent that they're wrong, they point fingers, and it's somebody else's fault, or it's external conditions that caused this, and they don't take ownership. And I think just the simple act of admitting, saying, you know what, I was wrong about this, you're right, let's move in your direction, yeah. very powerful, it's very liberating, and if you get into the habit of being vulnerable and transparent and honest with people in that regard, it, you know, it can change the way people think of you as a leader. So don't be afraid to admit you're wrong. And then third, simply say thank you. Yeah. This notion of, you know, people, if you're a leader, you've got people that work for you, and they do and they do and they do to make you look good. Are you saying thank you? Are you making that simple connection that our parents taught us on a daily basis with the people who are doing so much to help make you look good. So I think that's another way to really develop and exercise humility and show concern for others and, and say thank you. It's as simple as that. 
simple, simple ideas, but unfortunately not as common practice as we would like to see out there. And I did want to mention also, um, you know, with regards to admitting that we're wrong, which I think is just, you know, really powerful advice. I would agree with that. Um, that that we also had the opportunity to interview uh, on bookends uh, John Cador, who uh, wrote a book called Effective Apology, and uh, I learned a great deal uh, from his work and um, you know how to really apologize in a way that has a lot of meaning and um, you know is acceptable to a person that we've wronged in some way. So right. it might be might be um, some good help for someone that might be listening. To wrap up our time today with you, Steve, and this has been so wonderful, um, you share some visualization techniques that help you develop yourself as a leader in a chapter that you call uh, Write Your Own Screenplay. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about these techniques and, and share these with us? Yeah, I really want you to think about and imagine yourself in, in a future role that's different from your own. So if you were to... Um, you know, if you were blue-skying your future, and, and I think people ought to do this from time to time, what kind of organization is best for you? Are you a large company, small company, nonprofit, government, consulting firm, or solo practitioner, let's say? That's a list of six, and you could say, you know, let me eliminate a couple. That leaves these two. That's the kind of organization that I really want to be in, that I think I'd thrive in, uh, and, and so on. So that's the first thing I ask people to do. Then, you know, I'd ask them to kind of think about what industries or market segments they want to be in. Where do you want to work? So let's say you want to work in alternative energy or, um, you know, service like the Peace Corps or something like that. Identify where you want to be, what size company you want to be in. Now you're starting to narrow this down. How about geography, right? Where do you want to live? That's an incredibly important decision that means a lot to our uh, our well-being in, in many different ways, right? So work environment, what kind of uh, industry do you want to be in? Uh, where do you want to live? These are questions that I think if you examine where you are today in your life, right, because we all evolve and we all change, you may end up making some kind of bold choices a little earlier than, than maybe you otherwise might have by chasing what matters to you. But you have to do the work to think about what that would be. Um, one piece of advice that I give leaders that's kind of simple, but I hope profound, is this. If you want to become a better leader, you need to spend time thinking about becoming a better leader. <laughs> and it, it, you, you have to put in the time. You have to do your homework. You have to reflect. You have to gather feedback. You've got to take this thing called leadership and study it as though it were a real profession because I believe it is. Yeah. So if you want to get better, you've got to roll up your sleeves and, and get after it. You've got to work on it. And that includes thinking about where you're going to do your best work in the future. That's great, really great. Well, Steve, I think many organizations do need support in developing leaders, and uh, I'm wondering if you could talk with us just a little bit about how you might be able to support organizations looking for um, this kind of uh, the kind of work that you do. What what are the kinds of things that you can provide uh, in terms of your services and offerings? I really kind of work on the individual team and enterprise-wide level, and I, and I think that individual coaching is an expensive development opportunity, but a very valuable and meaningful one, and, and, and companies don't pull that, uh, pull that lever uh, lightly. 
and, and they shouldn't, but it's a wonderful way to help a particular leader unlock a lot of uh, interesting insights and move them forward. So I do help a lot of companies through just individual executive coaching. At the team level, I believe strongly in the leadership development program experience. Coming together with 25 or 35 other high potential type leaders in the company and having an 8, 9, 12 month experience where you have several modules and action learning project, etc. is a wonderful way to kind of energize and boost your, your, your leadership uh, skills. And I help large companies design those programs and often teach and serve as kind of a faculty member in them after we've launched them. Mm -hmm. So that's how I help companies at the team level. At the enterprise level, I help companies design um, a couple of things. One, talent management processes like succession planning and talent review so that they can get a better grasp on who their you know, high potential leaders really are so they can make those differential investments. But also something new, Susan, that I think is going to be the wave of the future in leadership development, and that is leadership self-development. Mm -hmm. I think companies with the social networking tools we have now are going to move into a space of designing a very creative, uh, robust self-development set of tools and opportunities and resources and advertise the heck out of them in their companies and turn every leader into a learner on their own. So what do you want to work on? We got the resources and the wherewithal to help you, but it'll be informal. You're going to self-pace. You're going to you're, we can help you, but we really want to turn you on to a number of ways to do this. And that I think exponentially drives leadership development down into the organization, and you'll find out who's really serious, you know, about working on their game. So I, I help leaders, I help companies think about the notion of what would it look like if we really got seriously into the leadership self-development game. Yeah, that's great. That's Thanks really great. Asking. Well, yes, and um, you know, I certainly uh, you know appreciate what you've shared with us today, and and uh, you know, would feel that you would have a lot to offer organizations uh, in these areas, and I'm particularly intrigued by the last thing that you talked about. Sometime we'll have to talk some more about that offline. Um, Steve, but it really has been a pleasure to talk with you, and um, we thank you again for visiting with us today and sharing your knowledge and passion and, and your work uh, with us today. Thanks so much. It's truly been my pleasure, Susan. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. And, and following our interview today, uh, you are invited to join the conversation on leadership by joining the group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion, where you can pose questions for Steve, who will join us in this discussion, a group along with your colleagues and peers. You can locate all of our Bookends podcasts on iTunes and also at bookendsbookclub.net, where you can listen and gather free resources that our authors provide on our resource blog. Bookends has been brought to you by The Team Approach. Our producer is John David Bowman, and I'm your host, Susan Stan, thanking our special guest, Steve Arneson, and thanking you for listening. Please join us again. Music.